We'll be looking this morning at the second chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 2, specifically at the first four verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our minds, that you would make our hearts soft for your word, that it might be implanted and bear much fruit. We ask most of all, Lord, that by the power of your word and your spirit, you would make us more and more into the image of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. So we are moving now this morning into a new section of the book of Romans, chapter 2. Now, you should know that chapter numbers and even verse numbers are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're not original with the writing of the Bible. They came several centuries later. But at the same time, Chapter divisions and even verse divisions are helpful to us because it helps to highlight us to, for us what is in the text itself that is a breakdown of the, the content of the text. And in the case of the book of Romans, we have a letter written by Paul which is a single cohesive argument. And he moves from one point to the other. So as we move to chapter 2, remember the context of Paul's purpose here. The purpose of Paul's letter to the Romans is to share the good news of the gospel. To tell the Romans, and by extension you and me, that Jesus Christ lived and died so that sinners would be forgiven and restored to a relationship with God. But of course, as Paul lays out this argument the very first hurdle that he has to overcome is from those who say, well, I'm not a sinner. I don't need Jesus. And so because of that, Paul starts out this book confronting sin. He says that everyone knows God, but they fail to worship God. They fail to honor Him. In short, he says that everyone is an idolater. He then begins to show what this rebellion against God looks like. It looks like a denial of the natural order of things. 
an obvious sin of unnatural lusts. But then he goes on to say this is not the only sin. As a matter of fact, he lists 21 other sins to make sure we get his attention. This chapter 1 is directed primarily at those who are not religious, those who would not be in church. We might think of Paul's audience primarily in chapter 1 as Gentiles, those who are outside of the people who receive the word of God. But now as Paul moves to chapter 2, he's going to address those who do understand God's law, who understand right and wrong, who make judgments about morality, who try to live their lives in a certain fashion, a very different way than those in chapter 1. And so in chapter 2, we're going to look at one of the excuses that is used for not coming to God, and that is that I live a moral life. I'm basically okay. I don't need God because I follow the rules. And so this morning, I'd like us to see two main headings of Paul's text. First, we see the judgment of the Lord. That is, the true and inescapable judgment of God. And then secondly, we see the long-suffering of the Lord. The reason why that judgment doesn't come immediately upon us is because the Lord is long-suffering. The judgment of the Lord and the long-suffering of the Lord. Well, let's begin then by looking at God's judgment. Paul has this argument that he is building, and he has started it in chapter 1, laying out the sin of men before God, of the way they fall short of the glory of God, and they do it in very obvious ways. And so, we've said this before, we're going to keep seeing it. It's, it's remarkable that Paul anticipates the objections that are about to be made. And so, if you are listening to Paul at the end of chapter 1, and you are saying to yourself, well, but Paul, I don't have that kind of obvious sin in my life. You know, this is not described me. So, therefore... I must not be in rebellion against God and and the wrath of God isn't manifest on me because that doesn't look like me. You know, as a matter of fact, there are many people, perhaps you and me even, who are cheering on Paul in chapter 1. That's it. Go get them, Paul. That's the kind of sin we need to get rid of. If we can only get this kind of people out of our churches, out of our communities, things will be good again. Don't these people know that they should live more like me? Shouldn't they be watching me to figure out what they should do to live before God? And so Paul says once again, well, I'm glad you've asked that question. The answer is this. Therefore, you have no excuse. Now, he starts with this strong conclusion in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we've seen this word before. It's the same word that begins verse 24 of chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. So Paul was building his argument. He was saying everyone knows God. They suppress the knowledge of God. And therefore, because of that, God gives them over. But Paul does something interesting here. He starts with his conclusion. The therefore is not about the actions at the end of chapter 1. The therefore is actually about the actions of chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3. 
Paul is so certain about this, and he so wants to get our attention, that he starts with his conclusion. He's shocking us up out of our daydream, or perhaps better yet, out of our self-congratulation, as we say to ourselves, I'm so glad I'm not like those sinners. He does this intentionally. He says there is no excuse for those who judge the sin of others. He says you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now why is this? Well, first we must understand if someone judges someone else, they are acknowledging that there is a standard of conduct and action. Because after all, how would you judge something unless there's a standard to judge it against? These are the kind of people who do not believe anything goes. But what they failed to do in their judgment is to look in a mirror. And so what Paul is doing is he is calling them out for their hypocrisy. He's saying they are living outwardly moral lives... And that allows them to judge others, or better yet, to feel justified in judging others. But just because we live lives that look good before other people, doesn't mean we live lives that are right before God. Because God is the searcher of hearts. God knows all things. The things we do in secret. The things we speak under our breath. The things we even think, God knows. And so the very fact that someone judges and condemns sin in someone else, acknowledging that sin is real and that it exists, this does not relieve you from being judged yourself. Actually, Paul says, you are condemning yourself. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, Paul says. And he uses an even stronger form of the word to judge. The word for to condemn has at its root to judge someone. But it is taken up a couple of notches. Because when you judge them, you judge them in a negative way. You pronounce them guilty. You condemn. And so the moral, those who believe they are living moral lives, who are trusting in that, are condemning themselves by their judgments of others. Because what Paul says is, they practice the very same things. Paul wants our attention here. He actually begins that clause with the words, the same things. It's as if he wants us to realize, you know, you have the same thing in your life that you criticize and judge other people for. Your lives are marked by sin also. You practice these things. The tense of this verb is a present tense verb. It is not something that you did in the past. It's something you're doing right now. Don't pretend that you're not. And don't try and excuse your sin just by looking at others' sin. What Paul is saying to us is, just because others sin, even sin in an obvious way, that does not excuse our own sin. Paul says that the judgment of God is honest. It's not hypocritical. We don't get to excuse the sin in ourselves that we judge in others. Our Lord Jesus Christ puts it this way in Matthew chapter 7. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
There is one standard. And if we acknowledge that there is a standard, we must look at our own lives even more closely than the lives of others. Well, so the next obvious question that comes up then is, Paul, what do you mean I do the same things? Now, there's a good argument to be made here. Someone might say to Paul, Paul, I'm a moral person. I don't define my life by unnatural lusts. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't attacked my parents. I'm not ruthless to other people. All these things you're talking about, Paul, I don't do. What do you mean I'm like them? But what we have to understand is, Paul is not saying you have committed the exact same actions as these others. He's saying you do the same things, namely, sin. Just as they sin, you sin. Now, it may look different. It may be internal instead of external. It may be something you're better at hiding. It may be something you use under your breath or in the dark or when no one's around. But you still are guilty of sinning. And Paul tells us this because there is a blindness that comes over the eyes of people when they look at others' sins. When we look at other people's sins, we then become blind to our own. It's kind of like this. Have you ever had the experience of going out on a beautiful sunny day like today and looking up into the sky? Maybe it's because you heard an airplane go by or someone yelled, hey, a balloon. Or maybe you just wanted to see the clouds. And you look up and you spend an inordinate amount of time, maybe 20 seconds or 30 seconds looking up, and you get too much sun in your eyes. And then you look away from the sky, and then what do you see? Nothing, right? Because you see sunspots. All you see is the effect of the sun. You look around and you can't see things. And as a matter of fact, if you look too long, you lose your ability to see around you in a permanent way. That is a picture of what it's like when we fix our gaze on other people's sins. We become enamored with finding sin in others. And then when we come to look at our own lives, we're unable to see our own sins. We're unable to repent ourselves. But God doesn't have this kind of blindness. Now, Paul says the judgment of God is true. He says it rightly falls on those who practice these things. God's judgment is, the Greek says, according to truth. That's what rightly falls means. God judges according to truth itself. Not according to what we want. Not according to what we think. He doesn't excuse some sinners because they agree with him about certain sins. No. God judges truly. But sinners tend to be blind to the nature of sin. Those who are self-righteous in their morality, they look at the sin of others and they think that's all that sin is. That murder is only shooting someone and killing them. That stealing is only robbing a bank. That lying is only the intentional, complete telling of an untruth. And this allows us to make an excuse for ourselves. We say, well, we have every right to hate that person. Well, we don't steal things, we, we just borrow things. And, you know, maybe we forget to give them back. We 
we could take things only that the company affords to lose. After all, they have a lot of these things laying around. It's not like anybody really cares if I take them. And we don't lie. No, do we? We just stretch the truth. What a world of difference that is. But Jesus has told us how we are to look at God and His law. He says we are to be wide and broad in its application to us. And this is the exact problem with the Pharisees. In the New Testament, the Pharisees thought they could define God's law. And they just happened to define God's law in a way that fenced it so that everything they did was on the other side of the fence. They just happened to define God's law so that they never committed a sin. They defined away sin. And that's what Paul is warning you and me against. Having a view that's quick to condemn others and quick to excuse ourselves. But Jesus tells us we have to take a hard look at ourselves. It's not just killing that's a sin. It's anger. It's not just breaking into someone's home and stealing from them. No, it's robbing time that your employer is paying you for to surf Facebook. It's not just telling untruths, but it's failing to uphold the truth. We have to understand our own sin. And Paul says to us that we cannot divert God's attention away from our sin simply by pointing out others' sins. Now we see this all the time in our homes, don't we? I'm sure parents are aware of this. And kids, lest you think it's just you, I'm sure your parents did this when they were your age. It's when mom and dad come and confront one of the children and say, you've done something that you shouldn't have done. You've been disobedient. And the child says, well, but did you see what she did? Did you see what my brother did? Trying to deflect. Trying to take the focus off of themselves and put it on to someone else. And we really hope what we've got is something really juicy to point out. That, you know, I may have not finished my dinner and thrown away my dinner. But did you see the mess her room is? It's a disaster. Go punish her. Go after her. And if we're not careful, that's how we can live our lives. We become experts in pointing out the sins of others. And we're blind to our own. And the problem with that is, it doesn't change what we have done to simply misdirect God's judgment. It doesn't do away with the guilt we have for our own sins. Sinners are blind to their own sin. And it's also a failure to see in our own lives what we see in others. I can think of no better example of this than from the pages of Scripture itself. Do you remember the story of David and Nathan? And Nathan came to David and he said, Let me tell you a story. There is a man, and this man has flocks and flocks of sheep. And then there's another man who has one little lamb. And he feeds this lamb from his dinner table. And he takes care of this lamb. And he loves this lamb. And the man who had flocks and flocks and flocks took the one lamb away from the second man and used it 
And David says, bring the man here now. He shall not live out the day. David absolutely understands the sinfulness of that. And what does Nathan say? You are the man. This is exactly what you've done. Except for it's not with a lamb, it's with a man's wife. Do you not see that the sin that you have seen in others is in your own life? Now, if this can happen to David, God's anointed king, a man after his own heart, a writer of the Bible, how can we think we are invulnerable to this? We're not. God's judgment is just. If you're sitting here this morning and you think you don't need to confess sin, if you think this morning you don't really need Jesus because there are dozens and dozens of people who are worse than you, then you are in a place of danger. Because what we have to do is take a hard look at ourselves, a harder look than we look at others. We must know that God's judgment is true. It is just And it doesn't bear any favoritism. The next thing that Paul tells us about God's judgment is that it is inescapable. He's emphatic in verse 3. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them for yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now Paul starts and figuratively looks us right in our eyes. The very beginning of this verse is actually you. He's looking right at us. And he asks what we call a probing question. If you've ever wondered why preachers do this, why they ask these kinds of questions that make you squirm a little bit about your life, this is why. The Bible does it. The Bible tells us that this is how we root out sin in our lives. We have to be confronted with our sin. We don't just assume everything is fine. We have to be confronted with our sin so that we can repent of it and flee it. And what Paul says is, can you possibly make the determination that God's judgment doesn't apply to you? What Paul is doing is setting God's truth over against the assumptions of people. He says, are you reckoning Are you calculating that you won't be judged? And it's interesting that he uses the same word here, suppose, in verse 3, that he will use later in chapter 4 about how Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. It was supposed, to use our translation here, as righteousness. You see, what Paul is saying here is, you are reckoning, you are counting, you are standing in judgment of yourself when it is God who is the judge. What essentially we do in this instance is we substitute our judgment for God's. And what Paul is showing us is how foolish this is. The moral person acknowledges that there is a moral order. He says that there is sin. And that sin should be punished, just punished in other people. And yet he actually does the same things. When Paul says you do the same things, that word is actually stronger than what he says others practice these things. 
You're involved in the same sorts of things. You are a sinner as well. Why would God excuse that in you? The judgment of the Lord is true, and therefore it is inescapable. There is no way to get away from the judgment of God. So why would someone think that they could avoid God's judgment? Especially because God is talking about people that acknowledge morality and they acknowledge sin. Why would some people think that they can avoid judgment? Why does the moral sinner not think about the punishment of his own sin? Well, it may be because he doesn't think he has sinned. We've we've seen this in the text. But I think there's something more than that. I think the so-called moral sinner presumes upon the patience of God. He sees the long-suffering of God with him, and he believes that that is approval rather than long-suffering or patience. And so what Paul is doing here in chapter 2 is he is speaking not exclusively, but directly to the religious of his day, to the Jews, to those who have the scriptures, to those who understand there is God's law, to those who know the Ten Commandments, to those who know that they should not be committing the types of sins described in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's talking about the Gentiles, those who are involved in gross sin. They had no obedience to God's law. And so the Jews saw this, and because of this, they wanted to be nowhere near the Gentiles. It's interesting that at this time in Judaism, there are really two names for the Gentiles among the Jews. They wouldn't call them the Gentiles. They either called them dogs, or they literally called them sinners. That was their name for them. Those are the sinners. And so the Jews thought that they were right before God because they didn't go to such an extent of sin as the Gentiles and they knew God's law. And the other thing that's involved with this is that they had received God's blessings. The entirety of their history was the blessing of God being poured out on them. Think about it. Abraham being called out of his country and brought to the promised land. The exodus where Israel is delivered from slavery and bondage. Coming into the land and being victorious under Joshua. The reign of David the king. The building of the temple. Their return from exile. The entirety of their history is built upon the blessings that they receive from God. But the problem is they had begun to confuse why they had received the blessings. Instead of seeing the blessings as God did, as the unmerited blessings and grace from God to them, the least of all nations, God tells us. Instead, they thought it was they who deserved the blessings. And so the next step was to presume that the goodness of God was a verification of their own goodness. They deserved the blessings. It was God's reward to them. And so they saw the goodness of God as evidence that they were not sinners. That they didn't need the grace of God. And so Paul challenges these so-called moral people. Starting with the Jews, but expanding beyond. He challenges them about their view of God's goodness. 
He says, do you take God's goodness as proof that you're not a sinner? Do you think so little of God that you believe He owes you? And the language here is clear when Paul says, do you presume that word has the connotation of looking down on something, of treating something with contempt. He's saying, do you look down on God and His goodness? Do you treat God's mercy with such contempt that you think it's something you're owed? This kind of presumption is very dangerous. It looks at the final judgment, or rather the lack of a final judgment, as evidence of our worth. The kindness that comes from God is not about our worth. It is about His mercy. We don't deserve the goodness and the kindness of God. In fact, His kindness, His generosity, His goodness comes to us in Jesus. This is exactly what Paul says in chapter 2 before he comes to that famous passage about how we are justified by faith and that that is not of works, but rather it is a gift of God. Before he comes to that, he says that God is rich in mercy. And he shows this through the kindness that he gives toward us in Christ Jesus. So this morning, do not think so lightly of God's mercy. It came at a great cost. It came at a cost of the blood of the Son of God, of the life of Jesus Christ. The riches of God's kindness are rooted not in what we do, but in what Jesus did. The second thing that Paul reminds us about God's patience is that it is a forbearance. He says, do you presume the riches of his forbearance? Now, what is a forbearance? Now, some of you may know that before I was a pastor, I was a lawyer. And the main thing that I practiced was something called commercial finance. That is, companies would borrow money from banks. And when they did that, there would come times when the company wasn't able to pay the payments on the loan. And so the bank would come to the company and they would work out a forbearance. Now, what a forbearance did not mean is, you don't owe us any money anymore. Go ahead. Take a vacation. Blow the money on what you want. The house is yours. No, that's not what they mean. What they mean is, we're going to forbear on collecting it. You have to actually acknowledge that you own it. And all we're going to do is we're going to put off the day of reckoning, until a future time. You absolutely, positively still owe. And this is God's forbearance to sinners. The fact that He does not bring judgment upon sinners immediately does not mean that He is okay with their sin. It is not a world of, I'm okay, you're okay. It is not a world where the failure to see the final judgment of God means that there is no judgment at all. It is rather that God has put His wrath on hold. And He has done this because of His mercy, because of His grace. But more yet, He's done this so we might realize our sin. That we might realize that we are indebted to Him. That we are naked before Him. That we are judged before Him. And so that we might repent of our sin and to run from it, and to run to Jesus. 
Now, if we under, misunderstand his patience, we are in great danger. Because we'll think everything is fine. We think there's no need for repentance, no need for faith, no need for redemption. We could think Jesus is a crutch for other people who can't live their lives right like we do. But the Bible teaches us that God is patient and he forbears. He endures with our rebellion. He puts up with it. He is patient and tranquil for now, but that will not last forever. Actually, the word for patience here means long-suffering or greatness of endurance. It tells us how great and merciful God is, not how good we are. Do not presume that God has to vindicate you because of who you are or what you have done. Do not presume on His patience forever. Today is the day to run to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to deal with sin. So finally, why is God so patient with sinners? Well, it's obvious that people aren't that patient. We just saw a group of people at the beginning of chapter 2 have no patience with the people in chapter 1. Right? We just saw that. Paul has been describing this for us. There must be a reason for God's patience. It's not to, to overlook sin forever because God is telling us, or excuse me, Paul is telling us this is specifically not the case. And so this is how Paul ends this passage. He says, are you presuming on God's kindness and his patience because you don't know why he's doing that? He says, let me tell you why God is patient. Let me tell you why God is kind. It's so that with this knowledge, you can see your responsibility before God. He uses an interesting word here when he says, not knowing these things. The word is actually the word agnostic. He says, are you agnostic about God's purposes? And oftentimes we think of being agnostic as being a positive thing. It's not like being an atheist, bad and mean. It's noble and good. I'm agnostic. I don't have enough evidence yet. Well, Paul turns that around here. He basically says, are you so foolish that you don't know and understand what God is saying to you? You don't know what God's purpose is. He says, let me clue you in to God's purpose. God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. That's why God's patient. God suffers so that you might not suffer. He suffers by enduring with your rebellion, enduring with your sin, enduring with your arrogance against Him, the Creator. And He does this for His own purpose. It is His purpose to bring sinners to repentance and forgiveness in Christ. So do not see your lack of judgment as a vindication of your actions. See this patience as God's loving, merciful, reaching out to you in Christ. If God wanted to condemn all sinners, He could have done it long ago. I've got news for you. You don't deserve a second chance. What you deserve is to be born in hell for judgment upon your sin. 
But God in His mercy is patient. And more than that, He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to show you the error of your ways so that you won't compare yourself against other sinners, but you will see the true standard, the true man, Jesus Christ. And more than that, Jesus died on the cross so that you might truly escape the judgment of God. Not by trying to outrun it, but by having the judgment of God satisfied, completed. That is your true hope. In His Word, God warns us against false hope. He tells us He has given us true hope in Jesus. Give up comparing yourself today and find true hope in Jesus. Let's pray.